Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. From Psalm 90. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long, and let it repent thee concerning thy servants. O satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us, and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work appear unto thy servants, and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us pray together. Keep us, O Lord, from one generation to another. And let not us, who have clung to thy foundation, be carried away with this present world. But arise to be our comforter in trouble, and by the bestowal of joy, wipe away our sorrows. Wherefore, we say, Glory be to the Father, who is God from everlasting. Glory be to the Son, His very mercy and grace. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, who strengthens our hands, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. Amen. We continue on through the Westminster Shorter Catechism. This morning we come to question 25, so let us read this together. Question 25 asks, How doth Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executeth the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God, and in making continual intercession for us. Well, we continue to consider how Christ redeems us as our prophet, priest, and king, Last week we said that Christ is the greatest of all prophets and that he declares to us the way of salvation. And this morning we consider how Christ is the greatest of all priests. So what exactly is a priest? The quality that most distinguishes a priest from all others is that a priest is a mediator between God and man. A priest is a special go-between that brings things uh, that brings divine things down to man and who offers man's things up to God. So what divine things does the priest bring down to us? Well, we read in Malachi 2.7, it says, The priest's lips should keep knowledge, and the people should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So one of the things priests bring down or guard and keep is divine revelation. We read also in number six that God commands the priest to place the divine name and the divine blessing upon God's people. So God says, speak to Aaron, the priest, and his son, saying, this is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. 
Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. So the priest brings down from God his law and his promise, his blessing and his benediction. What about the things the priest offers up to God from man? Well, we read in Hebrews 5.1 that every high priest taken from among men, is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the priest offers up two things, gifts and sacrifices. Under the old covenant, this was done by the offering of animals upon the bronze altar in the courtyard and the offering of incense on the golden altar in the holy place. So incense signified the prayers and petitions of the people, while the animals signified the firstborn son or the worshiper himself. But in all these gifts and sacrifices, the goal is to make satisfaction for sins and to restore fellowship between God and his people. All right, well, how then is Christ the greatest of all priests? Holy Scripture declares that Christ is a priest forever, not according to the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood, but according to the order of Melchizedek. And because Jesus died and rose never to die again, his priesthood is everlasting. And so now he lives to make intercession for you. Jesus is the priest who voluntarily lays down upon the altar. And because Jesus is perfect and true man, his offering makes satisfaction in a way that the blood of bulls and goats never could. For just a single drop of Jesus' blood is more than sufficient to atone for every sin ever committed. And therefore, we as Christians plead that blood. We trust in Christ's death and we hope in his promise that as it says in Hebrews 10, 14, by one offering... He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That's you. This is the ground and the foundation upon which we confess our sins every week. So as you're able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. But we are risen and stand upright. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's covenant church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. Our sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. These are the words of God. And they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And many charged him that he should hold his peace, but he cried the more a great deal, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood still, and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. And he, casting away his garment, rose, and came to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said unto him, 
What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. Let's pray. O Father, open our eyes now that we might behold wondrous things from your law. Give us the light of faith and the light of understanding that we might rejoice in beholding the Lord Jesus, who is the fairest of the sons of men. We ask for your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Before Jerusalem became the capital of Israel and the city of David, it was inhabited by the Jebusites. We read and we heard in 2 Samuel 5 that the Jebusites, and particularly the blind and the lame, taunted David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither. In other words, the Jebusites felt so secure, fortified in Jerusalem, they thought even the blind and lame among them could defend that stronghold against David, or so they thought. Well, David, as God's anointed king, uh, is not going to be hindered. And in the next verse, it says, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. The same is the city of David. And David said on that day, Whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore they said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So before David can enter Jerusalem, the blind and lame Jebusites must be destroyed. The blind and lame defenders of Jerusalem must be removed and only afterward uh, and afterward they are not permitted to enter his house. Strange story, right? (laughs) Well, in our sermon text this morning, we have the final episode before Jesus, the son of David, invades Jerusalem. And what do we find? A blind man, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, who cries out for mercy. Now, this story of Jesus healing a blind man is on the surface a fairly uh, simple and straightforward story. However, there are certain peculiarities about this story that suggest uh, there's a lot more going on here. Uh, Already, we have seen in Mark's gospel that everything that Jesus does, every single thing that Mark records and puts in Holy Scripture for the church to read for uh, all time, everything that Jesus does is a living parable. And just as we must meditate upon his actual parables, thinking about what is seed, what is soil, what is light, like like we did uh, some months back, so also we must meditate and ponder all of Jesus' actions. And because Jesus is God, everything that Jesus does is illustrative and instructive for revealing to us who God is and what he is like. The actions and words of Christ are the very actions and words of God. So as with the parables, there are multiple layers to them. And here, in this healing narrative, we are going to find there are multiple layers as well. So as we consider the kind of uh, historical or literal sense of the text, we also want to keep our eyes out for uh, the deeper spiritual significance here. 
Now, remember the context where we are in the gospel. Jesus has just completed the third of three cycles wherein he tells in very plain terms that he's going to suffer, die, and rise again. Okay, so uh, we just uh, had the third cycle uh, last week, and this happens three times. These three cycles are bookended, and it began actually with the healing of a blind man, and it ends here with the healing of a blind man. So the middle section of Mark's gospel is bookended by a healing of a blind man, and then in between, Jesus is telling his disciples in plain words, I'm going to suffer, die, and rise again. I'm going to suffer, die, and rise again. Suffer, die, and rise again. And each time, the disciples clearly do not understand. So here, uh, so back in Mark 8, uh, Jesus healed a blind man in two stages. This is the men as trees walking incident. And when we studied that passage, we said that uh, this healing is a parable for what the disciples are like. Their vision is still blurry to who Christ is and what he has come to do. So that's how the section started, these three cycles. Now here in Mark 10, after Jesus has told his disciples in terms that we would expect them to understand that he's going to die and rise again, he heals another blind man. And this is actually the final healing miracle in Mark's gospel. This is the setup for Jesus' triumphal procession in chapter 11, where he enters Jerusalem and cleanses the temple. So this is kind of a transitionary uh, portion of Mark's gospel that ends that middle section and begins the kind of race to Jerusalem. So everything else after this healing is centered in and around Jerusalem. So with all of that kind of context in our minds, uh, let us walk through our text, starting in verse 46. It says, And they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. So notice first that this scene is set on the way out of Jericho. If you remember earlier in Mark's gospel, we've seen Mark already make parallels between the first Jesus who is Joshua, it's the exact same name in Hebrew, uh, Greek, and in in English, we tend to translate it differently, but Joshua and Jesus is the exact same name. And so we remember that after Moses died and Israel crossed the Jordan River, Joshua conquered Jericho. We know the walls fell down. Mark has already portrayed Jesus as a new Joshua who is regathering Israel in the wilderness and leading them into the promised land. And so here again, we have that same theme occurring. Mark says Jesus came to Jericho, and then he goes out of Jericho, and he is accompanied by a great crowd. This is Joshua with Israel conquering Canaan all over again. Now, Jericho is where the steep ascent to Jerusalem begins, and it's roughly 18 miles of very difficult and dangerous terrain to go from Jericho to Jerusalem. You recall uh, the story of the Good Samaritan. Where does that take place? Well, it takes place on this same road. I mean, that's just a story. But Jesus picks out, you know, where are you going to get robbed and beaten and need a Good Samaritan? It's going to be on this road, this road from Jericho to Jerusalem or Jerusalem back to Jericho. So Jesus is uh, retracing the very steps of Israel. He is walking the same path that Joshua and David and many others walked Before him. This is significant. Now, as Jesus is beginning his ascent to Jerusalem, we are told that a blind man named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, 
sat by the highway side begging. Now, it's very easy to just read that and just keep going. All right, here, here's his name. But this is actually what we would call a, a lightning letter in Holy Scripture. A lightning letter is something that God puts in the Bible to kind of strike you and make you go, hmm, that's kind of odd. That's kind of weird. Uh, and there's lots of these in the text. If you've ever read your Bible and hit a section where you're like, okay, I have no idea what I just read, uh, there's a good chance it's one of these lightning letters that is purposely put there to make you stop and have to think and go either, that doesn't seem to make total sense, or why are you telling me this information? It seems totally irrelevant to the story. Well, this is one of those lightning letters. What is so significant about verse 46, this blind beggar? Well, what is significant is that the Gospels almost never tell us the name of the person who is healed. There are some very, very rare exceptions. Uh, You could think of someone like Lazarus in John's Gospel who's raised uh, from the dead. But if you think about it, the Gospel writers almost always name the person who gets healed by either their affliction or who they are related to. So if you kind of just jog through your mind, do you know the name of anyone in the Gospels that Jesus heals? Lazarus, and you might think, who else? In Mark's gospel, we've had uh, people like the demoniac. We have the woman with the flow of blood. We have Jairus's daughter. We have Peter's mother-in-law. We have the leper, and so forth. You'll notice, hardly ever are we given their proper name. And in Mark's gospel in particular, there is only one person that Jesus heals whose name we are told. And it's this guy, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. What's more, Bartimaeus is actually quite an odd name. It's actually a fusion of an Aramaic name and a Greek name. So Bar is Aramaic for son of, while Timaeus is a very Greek name that means honor or highly prized or highly valued. So Mark actually gives us his name twice. This is one of those reasons why you can think there's something going on here. Why is he Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus? So he gives it to us first in Greek, although in English it's reversed how they translated it, but he gives it to us first in Greek and then in Aramaic. So he really wants us to know this man's name. And the question we should be asking is, why? Why does Mark draw so much attention to Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus? Well, I believe there are at least two reasons for why Mark does this. First, Remember what Jesus has been drilling into the disciples' heads about wanting to be great in the eyes of the world. Jesus has just rebuked them for worldly ambition, envy, and rivalry. And he was also just turned down by the rich young ruler. He invited him to follow him. Rich young ruler said, "Hmm." he went away sad. And so here in Bartimaeus, we have really the total opposite of everything that the world aspires toward. Here's a blind man who has nothing, who sits on the side of the road and begs for alms, right? Which one of us would want to trade places with him, right? However hard your life is, very few people would say, yeah, I'll I'll be blind and sit on the side of the road and beg. So uh, this is uh, kind of the lowest of the low, the least of these. And what is his name? Bartimaeus, son of honor, son of honor. 
Jesus says in Luke 16, 15, that what is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. What the world esteems as great and honorable is abomination in the sight of God, Jesus says. Well, here in, in, uh, here in blind Bartimaeus, we have something that is abominable in the eyes of the world, and it is highly esteemed in the sight of God. Jesus is going to restore to this man the honor that is due to his name. He is going to make Bartimaeus into a true Bartimaeus, a true son of honor. And so what follows is, is really a kind of a summary of everything that Jesus has been teaching his disciples. That honor is not found in what the world esteems, but honor is found in the eyes of God. And that is all that we should care about. So Bartimaeus is kind of this parabolic summary of everything that Jesus has been trying to teach his disciples from the get-go. As to the second reason for giving us this name, I'll save that for the end. Uh, Continuing in verse 47. And when he heard, so this is uh, Bartimaeus, when Bartimaeus heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. So blind Bartimaeus hears that Jesus is approaching and he cries out to him. And this is the first time that anyone calls Jesus the son of David in Mark's gospel. After the healing of the first blind man in Mark 8, Peter makes this glorious confession that thou art the Christ. But here it is the blind man himself who sees even more clearly than the disciples who Jesus actually is. Jesus is David's son. He is a king of mercy and he is going to reconquer Jerusalem. Well, how do the people respond to this man crying out? Verse 48. And many charged him that he should hold his peace, but he cried the more a great deal, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. So here the crowd now is doing what the disciples were just doing earlier, keeping the children away from Jesus, keeping the needy away from Jesus. And it says, many charged him to hold his peace, to stop talking, stop crying out to Jesus for mercy. Clearly, the crowds do not understand why Jesus came to earth or why he's going to Jerusalem in the first place. However, despite the crowds trying to silence him, Bartimaeus perseveres and he cries out all the more, Son of David, have mercy upon me. So here is a man who has no illusions about his wretched and pitiable state. Bartimaeus knows There is nothing honorable or great about him. Unlike the rich young ruler, Bartimaeus has nothing to lose. And because he has nothing to lose, uh, he's not ashamed to keep crying out to Jesus for mercy. This is someone who is poor in spirit, of whom Jesus says, to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. And so what does Jesus, the son of David, do? Verse 49. And Jesus stood still. And commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. So Jesus, hearing this cry amid this uh, great crowd, stops and stands still. God hears the cry of the afflicted, and when he does, he commands us to come to him. By standing still, Jesus signifies the immovable and unchanging character of God 
which is that his goodness inclines him to remove our defects and dispel our misery. As it says in Psalm 24:10, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. That is, wherever Jesus walks, wherever he goes, whether in Galilee or Jericho or Jerusalem, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. This means that if you are in pain and you persevere in crying out to God, you can be assured that what David, the psalmist, says is true. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Psalm 34, 18 and 19. So the Lord is gracious. The Lord is full of compassion. And if he hears the cries of hungry lions and feeds them, well, then, of course, he will hear the cry of his people. So God stops when he hears our cries for mercy. This is what Jesus is showing us. But notice that he does not immediately come down and remove our misery. What does he do? Well, he tests our faith. He tests our resolve. He calls us to him so that we are forced to abandon the earthly comforts that we cling to. As it says in Jeremiah 29, 13, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Some people cry out for mercy, but only half-heartedly. And when the crowds tell them to be quiet, they shut up. They stop calling out. Or when a little relief comes, they stop praying. What is worse is that many people are just part of the crowd. Maybe they go to church They're in proximity to Jesus and his disciples, but they themselves have never cried out for mercy. It has never dawned on them that they are the ones who are spiritually blind and spiritual beggars and are actually in desperate need of God to have mercy upon them. And because they never cry out, they never receive mercy. They don't think they need it. And therefore, they're close, but they remain at a distance from God. They know about Jesus, but do not have Jesus as their true and close companion. This is why Psalm 138 verse 6 can say, Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. If you want mercy, if you want relief from your misery, then you must cry out and not stop crying out until you are searching for him with all your heart. That is what Bartimaeus does. And then God calls you, like he calls Bartimaeus to come to himself. Well, what does Bartimaeus do? Verse 50. And he, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. Remember now that Bartimaeus is still blind. He has heard that Jesus is calling him, but in order to get to him, he must literally walk by faith in what he hears and not by sight. Not only this, he throws off his garment. He forsakes what is probably the only possession that he still has, and he gets up and goes to Jesus. 
By these actions, Mark shows us that mercy is found when we put off the old man and forsake everything. Isn't this what Jesus has been teaching us for three chapters if we want to follow him? Mercy is had when we cast away our old garments, our sins and evil works, and arise and come to Jesus. And when we are standing there, naked and exposed in the light of God's presence, what does he do? What does Jesus do? Verse 51. And Jesus answered and said unto him, What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? That is a question that we just heard uh, the last two weeks. Remember that? Remember the context. Where did we just hear this same question? Well, this is what James and John asked of Jesus. Remember? They come to Jesus and they say, We would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. Mark 10, 35. And Jesus said to them, Okay, what do you want? And what did they want? They wanted honor. They wanted worldly glory. But here is a son of honor, Bartimaeus, who's crying out for mercy. And Jesus comes to him and he gives him the offer. What do you want me to do for you? Verse, uh, verses 51 and 52. The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, go thy way. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. Here now is actually the final test. Jesus gives him what he asks for, his physical sight, and then says to him, go thy way. But what does Bartimaeus do? Well, we see here that Bartimaeus has received also spiritual sight. And therefore, Mark says he didn't go his own way. He didn't go back to his hometown. He followed Jesus in the way. Right? This is the choice that everyone has when they receive some kind of mercy from God. Right? Where do you go when you're not in pain anymore? Where do you go when you're healthy again, when there's money in the account, when your relationships are thriving and life is good? Do you go your own way or do you follow Jesus in his way? Many people settle for temporal blessings from God. God is abundant and overflowing in mercy, and he gives to all far beyond what we deserve. And yet many people are content to have only their temporal afflictions removed. People forget that this life is very, very brief. And mercy, if it would be had, must be had here if we would avoid eternal misery. So behold, in this healing of Bartimaeus, God's willingness, his delight and joy to give you salvation. And the only thing that is keeping you from heaven and eternal bliss is you. Jesus, remember, was just as willing to give the rich young ruler mercy. But he never asked. He didn't want it because he didn't think he needed it. He counted the cost of losing his stuff and of becoming like the blind, blind beggar to be too great of a sacrifice. Right? The rich young ruler had too much to lose. And so you can see what Jesus said is true, that it is hard for those who are comfortable, rich, those who are not afflicted in this world, it's actually hard for them to enter heaven because they're kind of 
They've got heaven here. It's comfortable here. This is also why we can learn to be content and joyful in our afflictions. Because we see that by our afflictions, we are made to yearn for God. When we forsake ourselves and cast away the earthly things we hold dear, even and especially the good things, we are able to then receive the best thing, namely God. Remember, that's what God wanted to give the rich young ruler. He said, why do you call me good? There's only one that is good, it is God. And that's what God wants to give you. But you have to let go of what you are holding to. Many, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord who is merciful delivers us out of them all. Eternal mercy is what God wants everyone to yearn for. And so temporal suffering can be received by us as his loving and wise hand to bring us to him. If you can see that, it will, it will change your life. It will change the way you relate to your trials. I'll close with this. You remember I said there was a second reason for Mark giving us this name Bartimaeus. Well, I believe the second reason is because in Bartimaeus is signified the salvation of the Gentiles, our salvation. Let me explain. Um, Have you ever seen that famous painting by uh, Raphael? It's in the Vatican of uh, the School of Athens. So this is the one where uh, Plato and Aristotle are center and Plato's pointing up, you know, to the world of the forms and Aristotle's kind of gesturing down uh, to this, this world. Well, in that picture, uh, Plato and Aristotle are each holding a book. Does anyone know what Aristotle is holding? Aristotle is holding his Nicomachean ethics, a very important work in the history of the world. And you know what Plato is holding? Most of us, maybe you've not ever read it, but his most famous work, at least to us, is The Republic. But he's not holding The Republic. He's holding a work that actually takes place right after The Republic, which is called Timaeus. Timaeus. And Timaeus is Plato's origin story for how the world came to be. And in it, there's this character named Timaeus, who Plato is speaking through, who describes the creation of the universe. And he is actually, Plato, is the only ancient author to ever posit that there is a creator who actually predates matter. Every other ancient creation myth has the world being eternal or the gods being a part of creation. And so Timaeus is really the closest that the pagans ever got to the truth of Genesis 1. Well, in Timaeus, listen to what Timaeus himself says. He says this, According to my account, sight is responsible for the greatest benefit to us, because not one of the accounts we are relating about the universe would ever have been spoken without seeing the stars or sun or the heaven. For from this sight, we have acquired philosophy in general, and no greater good has ever or will ever come to mortal creatures as a gift from the gods than this. So I declare this to be the greatest benefit of eyes. For Plato, for Timaeus, for the Greeks, the highest good was philosophy. And it was sight that allowed man to achieve that highest good. 
And so I think it is just a remarkable coincidence that the only person Mark ever names who is healed by Jesus is a blind man named Son of Timaeus. And when Jesus heals this Son of Timaeus, he gives him more than sight. He gives him a far greater good than philosophy. He gives him the saving knowledge of God. He gives him theology. He gives him the supernatural light of faith. He gives him everlasting mercy. Bartimaeus represents kind of the best of and the blindness of the Gentiles who grope in the dark with their half-truths and many falsehoods, just like you and I. But as Matthew 4.16 says, In Jesus, the people which sat in darkness have seen a great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. Jesus is the son of David who brings the blind and the lame into his house. Jesus removes the blind and the lame from the land, not by violence, not by killing them, but by healing them and making them whole. This is the mercy of the Lord that endures forever. And by Christ's death and resurrection, that mercy is offered to all who will call out to him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, you know the blindness of our world, of our region. You know the blindness of our leaders. And we know that you have been very patient, very merciful to us, despite our apostasy, despite our idolatry, despite our prizing your stuff more than you. Father, we ask that you would break the stranglehold that we have in clinging to our idols. We ask that you would turn us to you. We ask that you would put in us a cry and a persistent cry for mercy until you give it. That we would not be as the Pharisee who prays so that people will hear him and be impressed by his spirituality, but we would pray like the man who has nothing and simply says, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, we ask this for ourselves. We ask this for our nation. And we ask that you would give your mercy in Jesus' name. And amen. Amen. This meal is a reminder that no matter what miseries you are presently enduring, no matter how hard or difficult your present afflictions may be, it is not because God is absent or does not love you that he permits them to happen. But rather, all is mercy for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. In proof of this is that Jesus Christ suffered and died so that you would know just how much your Father in heaven loves you. As it says in Romans eight thirty-one and 32, If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Because of Christ's death and resurrection, we can be confident and acquire the same persuasion that the apostles and martyrs had. For the Apostle Paul says, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So receive into your heart the loving mercy of God. 
For here is Christ's body broken for you. Here is his blood spilled for your salvation. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Twofold charge, I invite you all uh, to stay and feast and fellowship with us. We'd love to uh, eat with you. Secondly, uh, Jesus says in Luke 6, 36, that God is kind unto the ungrateful and to the evil. Therefore, be ye merciful, as your, fa- as your Father also is merciful. Receive now the benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. And amen. Amen. Go in peace.